Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 28 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. On this episode, we are going to be talking all about lumbar flexion or rounding of the low back, and in particular, whether or not it is dangerous. So we will start off our conversation talking a little bit about the anatomy of this region of the body, as well as some common injuries that can occur. Then we'll talk about some of the different ways that you can flex your low back, uh, in particular, different ways or different styles of picking things up off the floor or bending over if you're talking about a yoga context, like a forward fold, or, or maybe picking up weights in a weightlifting context. We'll discuss some of the early research on quote unquote neutral spine and uh, what the more up-to-date research has to say on that topic. And then again, we'll examine all of these ideas in yoga, in just our daily lives in terms of picking things up, as well as in the gym. And if we have time at the end, we might get to some listener questions as well. To help us address this topic thoroughly, we have invited on a very knowledgeable guest, our friend Sam Spinelli. Sam is a doctor of physical therapy. He also has his CSCS, Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. He is from Kelowna, British Columbia in Canada. He owns and operates his own private training facility, as well as he is the co-founder of E3 Rehab and Citizen Athletics. And overall, he just does a really awesome job educating on rehab, fitness, and research, and all of these things. We learn a lot from Sam. Uh, His social media, his YouTube uh, is top-notch, especially through those companies that he co-founded. We'll link you to all of those Mm -hmm. resources in the show notes. Um, And also, Sam is a self-proclaimed cake aficionado. So maybe... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he'll have the opportunity to to share with us a little bit about that, or maybe not. Uh, but just again to reiterate, uh, we really, really respect Sam mm-hmm. and 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 everyone that we know in the rehab world does. So we are excited mm-hmm. to have him on with us. So welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's uh, wonderful to join you guys and talk about this. I'm really honored to be on. We are so happy to have you on. And yeah, like I echo everything that Travis just said in the intro, but I personally, I must have been following your work uh, online. I mean, just for years, I feel like, and I've learned a ton from everything that you put out and I'm sure you get this a lot, but I also often direct people to like your E3 rehab videos, you know, whenever you have so much good content out there. That's the whole goal. Anytime somebody asks me a question, mm-hmm. I'm just like, let me see if E3 Rehab has a video on this. <laughs> you go look at it, yeah. Like, 
every time you guys do. So mm -hmm. uh, like, thank you for that because yes, it's such yes, a everybody's life easier. And I can just, you know, I know that I can trust the information yes. that you're sharing. So it's, it's well, just a, if, such a valuable uh, resource. Thank you. If you or the listeners have any suggestions, we're always uh, looking for more topics and trying to round awesome. out, uh, be exactly that resource. Can we provide good education that others can benefit from, that can shorten yeah. other people's time, that can be a quick access and be something that is going to be uh, able to empower people, educate them and, you know, allow them to have some practical resources. That those were two of the three E's. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that is, is e. evidence. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Brilliant. I forgot the E3 stands for three E things. Yeah, it's, it, it's funny. Like people think that it's because there's Mark, Tony, and I. Mm -hmm. They're like, so what, what is the E about? And I'm like, it's actually got nothing to do with the three of us. <laughs> there, there's an E in Spinelli. That's true. That's true. You could find it in there. <laughs> Anyway, um, yes, yeah, so it's such an awesome resource. And also, I really appreciate how positive and diplomatic you guys are in like the education that you put out there and not not so negative or confrontational. I just think it can be really effective that way. Yeah, we try to think like there's like right now, I know there's a handful of channels that are more popular that take the other route. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think like just in the long term, you don't re necessarily reach as many people. You just like deal with more backfire effect. You uh, right. challenge people's beliefs too strongly or like they can't, uh, they're not open to changing their alternative if they're uh, presented information that way. So that's a great point. I think it shows like with the reach that we've gained on, on especially YouTube. My, right. my perception and maybe I, I, you can tell me if this is right or not, but like, like you said, there, there are people who maybe attack other people who they disagree with. And, and like you said, that can be click worthy, mm -hmm. uh, but it can have that backfire effect where if you, if somebody perceives it as negative, they just, they further entrench themselves in their own beliefs. But then like from, from my perspective, you guys are, you don't get mixed up in that. You just put out really solid mm -hmm. information, really high quality. And like the idea is, well, over time, we're going to be able to rival some of those like those other accounts that are maybe spreading misinformation. So we don't have to, you know, we don't even have to negate what they're saying. We can just reach more people with the good information. So yeah. it drowns out the bad stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's been the true. whole goal. Really well said, Travis. Uh, and I totally agree. And I'm sure that Sam is going to use that signature style of like this diplomatic and positive uh, education in what we talk about today. About the along that line. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So speaking of that topic uh, and what we, what we want to focus on today, we were wondering, Sam, if, you know, so like the, lum the lumbar spine, which is the low back region, I think most of our listeners are probably just aware of the fact that that area gets a lot of yeah, attention, especially in like um, the movement world, the fitness world, the yoga world. We tend to hear a lot of like cautions around this area and these ideas that we need to do it's really important that we do specific things to protect this area uh, and especially a, a lot of warnings around um, lumbar flexion, which is the rounding of the lumbar spine. So before we like dive too much into all of that, we were wondering, Sam, if you could just kind of provide maybe like a basic intro to the anatomy um, and the structure and maybe a little bit about the biomechanics of the lumbar spine region, just so we all know what we're talking about. 
Well, I'll try to do a good job of the biomechanics, uh, talking next to Travis. So, right. <laughs> but can, yeah, let's, yeah. let's, let's get rolling. So cool. when we're talking about the lower back, I think the easiest way to generally start the conversation is it's going to be the, the region between your pelvis and your ribs, simple mm -hmm. classification. And then as we start to dive into like what that means, you've got the bony anatomy. So we have our pelvis that then matches up to five lumbar vertebrae that then ends up coming to your thoracic region or where your rib cage is. And then that's surrounded by a lot of ligament tissues. There's ones that are around the outside of your spine, ones that run along inside the spine. Then you have nerves that are traveling down through your um, central canal and they pop out through the sides. And there's a ton of dense muscular tissue that's in the region. You know, you've got things that are uh, you got muscles that are really small, like your rotatories, and then they start to get bigger, like the multifidi, then they get even bigger, like your spinal rectors, and they get even bigger, like your latissimus uh, dorsi, uh, otherwise known as your lats. And so you've just got this huge expansion of things going from smaller to bigger. And then uh, something that we'll definitely discuss in a minute, you've also got your discs that are in between mm -hmm. each lumbar vertebrae. And so that's pretty much the major aspects of the anatomy of the region. Then as we start to look into the biomechanics or the motion of the area, we've got a few different major ones. So when we start to look at how the lumbar spine moves, looking at segment to segment, we have the ability to flex. So that's essentially like going into a forward bend, or mm -hmm. uh, if you're laying on your back, your knees coming towards your chest, anytime that you're front of your chest and your knees are coming in closer proximity. Then you have extension, which is the opposite motion, more like an upward dog. Mm -hmm. And then as you uh, start to look at two other motions, which are a lot smaller than the lumbar spine, you have lateral flexion. So like a side bend. Mm -hmm. And then you have again, rotation, which is um, essentially your legs stay in place. You rotate your chest or the opposite chest stays in place, rotate your legs. And when we start to look at the lumbar spine and we compare it to other spinal segments, it has more ability to flex and extend and less for rotation side bend. However, it still doesn't have a ton of motion because when you start to look at it, there's only five segments. They're really not very uh, big. They don't have a lot of space between them. So they actually can't move a ton, which is going to be important in our conversation later. Um, so a lot of times people think that there's like this major motion that occurs at them, but as we start to look at some of the, uh, or discuss some of the research later on, a lot of motion that is often perceived at the lower back is likely more either pelvic motion or actually thoracic motion. And it's a bit mixed up, I think, in some of the way that we talk about this and why there's been, um, so much, I guess, backlash with what some of the research shows versus what people themselves see and right yeah because like for instance something that we'll get into is like when the pelvis moves your lower back will move and yeah. sometimes people don't think that's the case but you know if your <laughs> if your pelvis uh if your hip goes into flexion your pelvis needs to uh, start to go forward and as it occurs you're going to have uh, associated lumbar motion. And if mm -hmm. the opposite happens, the uh, your hip goes into extension, you'll have associated lumbar motion. And so we see that there's just like this coupled action where if the pelvis moves, the lumbar spine will move. So for instance, like when you go from a upward to the downward dog, 
you could try your absolute best to not move your lumbar spine, but it will mm-hmm. have to move. I realize in yoga, you would let it move, but that makes, that um, makes a lot of sense. If for some reason you perceive that you needed to maintain a neutral spine in both of those exercises, it would be mm-hmm. uh, impossible. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I, I do I find describe neutral by the way. Oh, um, yes. could you? Thank you. <laughs> yes. What's neutral? What's a neutral spine? Yeah. That's like this, uh, general concept that's been floating around since probably like the seventies where there was an early researcher named, uh, Punjabi and he started to first describe it basically as like a, a range of motion where there was just less loading on different segments of the spine. And he generally defined it as being, this is a huge range, by the way, um, 300% of uh, the normal range of the spine. So it was like a very large degree of motion that could occur. And then, um, so when you start to look at it, uh, what that actually means is basically like you have an outrageous amount of motion. And if you just get to the very end ranges, that's when you're technically outside of um, neutral within his terminology. Whereas like people generally mean it as like, if you look at someone's spine when they're in standing, that's neutral. And like, should you flex or extend past that point, then you are no longer in neutral. That's usually what people kind of describe it as. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. That makes sense. I, I feel like I've heard discussions around neutral spine being described as like a static position, like you kind of click in and you're a neutral or you're not. But I've also heard language around there being more of a neutral zone, a neutral zone, which like maybe allows for a little, maybe not as much movement as you were describing with um, the Punjabi research. I think you said that was his name, but uh, something a little more narrow. Could you speak to that at all? Like static position versus uh, a zone? Yeah, I think that was one of the first things that started to get discussed as there was this exploration of that you probably can't maintain a singular position as you move. And so then people started to get a little bit more comfortable with that that will we'll allow a zone of it, not using Punjabi's definition, but just saying, okay, so we see that in standing, you have this singular position, which we'll call neutral upright torso, pelvis in level-ish position, ribcage level-ish position. So then your spine is in seven degrees of extension, something like that. Mm -hmm. So then we're going to call that boom neutral, but then (laughs) should you sit, should you walk, should you squat, should you do any sort of activity where you begin to move away from perfectly upright standing, we'll have this range that we're going to call neutral. And that's a, um, okay zone to be in and doesn't excessively load the spine, I think is how people generally describe it. Do they, do they ever put a number on it? Like, okay, it's this plus or minus. So I don't, I don't think so. Do you? I don't know. I feel like people generally leave it really vague because then they're not held accountable to it. <laughs> yeah, that makes it easier. <laughs> oh well, also, gosh. like, let me bust out my MRI glasses 
to make sure totally. that you're with plus or minus whatever this range is, right? So Sam, I noticed that when you were talking about the neutral zone for the spine that you, you made reference to, like one of the ideas is that if you stay within this general neutral, that you're okay, like that that will keep the spine okay, which just then makes me wonder about uh, what are like what are the potential uh, risks or um, potential injuries that that could happen? Like, what are we talking about in the lumbar spine region? Injuries that may happen that could be associated with not being a neutral. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm gonna do my best job to be as <laughs> descriptive without uh, inducing too much fear. So there's a <laughs> range that. of different. There's a range of different descriptions about changes that we see in the spine. It's hard to describe them as pathological, which we would generally uh, refer to as bad things, you know, like mm -hmm. you don't want this change to happen. However, we have a lot of growing research to show that these things occur without having any symptoms. These things, some of them might be natural parts of aging. Some of them, which I'm going to mention for sure, because I think this one relates especially to yoga, uh, may have occurred during uh, very young adulthood or even childhood. And you just may have never known about it. And then should you ever go and get some sort of imaging done, then they may have found something like this. And so I'll describe them and just keep that uh, little disclaimer in mind. So... Mm -hmm. You know, one of the most notable ones that people hear about is probably a disc herniation, disc bulge yeah. sort of description following that. And that's where, in essence, the uh, disc that we described that's in between the vertebrae has started to push out. It mm -hmm. may be pushing out while still being held in by the annulus fibrosis or the outer layers. It may have come through them. It may have gone small, further, just generally some sort of level of that. Um, and then there's the extreme case of where like it actually bursts. That's super rare. And when that occurs, you would definitely know about it because it's a, a very uh, serious injury. Mm -hmm. Then on the flip side, we have other injuries that can, or other changes that can occur. For instance, one that's often not discussed, but it relates to the discs is an end plate fracture. So where your annulus fibrosis actually attaches to your vertebrae is called the end plate. And when the um, a little tiny fracture essentially occurs to that region, it's called an end plate fracture. Um, it's way more common than previously thought and really related to um, further degrees of motion, essentially. So that's where it'll probably come up when we discuss this later on. Then we have other changes such as like a spondylolosis, spondylolisthesis. Uh, uh, there's three of them. Uh, spondylysis. Spondylysis. Yeah. 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 So essentially, they're just like different changes to the actual bones. So you've got the first mm -hmm. one, which is where we have um, some sort of um, increased bone density, essentially around the region, uh, sometimes called an arthritic change. However, seems to be just a normal part of aging. So some of the terminology around that's beginning to change. Then you have the next level where there's a tiny little fracture that occurs in a part of the spine, uh, spondylosis. And when that occurs, uh, if you were to take an image from the side, you can see a little line that crosses uh, one part of the, the back part of the spine. 
And then as you go to the next level, spondylolisthesis, sometimes there's actually slippage where the fracture line has now separated and one level of the spine relative to the other is um, not in that straight linear alignment anymore from a side view. You know, if you look at it from the front back, you wouldn't notice this. And then uh, those are uh, that can be graded usually from grade one, two, three, or four. And it's basically a percentage of zero to 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 75, 75 to 100. And so then sometimes it's given like a grading scale. Then you have um, scoliosis. So I mentioned when you're looking right. at it from the side, you would see uh, with the spondylolisthesis that there's a change, but from the front to back, you don't. Whereas in mm -hmm. scoliosis, it's uh, relatively the opposite, where if you look at it from a side view, you don't necessarily notice distinct changes. Whereas front to back, you notice more. Um, again, scoliosis has like a grading system. It's called the Cobb angle. And it's uh, basically looking mm -hmm. at how much of a change there is when you're comparing segment to segment. I think it's like in the vast majority of adults up to 25 degrees is really common. And once you start to pass 25 degrees, that's where you start to notice more um, hindrance on movement. And then once you pass 50 degrees, I think is when you start to see distinct uh, um, challenges with scoliosis where it can like impair breathing, it can impair organ function and is usually then surgically managed. Whereas like, it's something around like 65% of adults have um, less than, uh, they have scoliosis that is between that zero and 25 and it's asymptomatic, not, not an issue. Uh, I have it, um, probably right. one of you two has it. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> then we also have other changes that can occur. So uh, you have uh, ligament sprains. So like for instance, mm -hmm. Uh, you have one called your uh, posterior longitudinal ligament. It runs along the backside of your spine. You could theoretically strain that. Um, mm -hmm. You also have muscular strains. So, you know, like if you were, uh, I don't think this is probably as common in yoga, but if you were doing like a really fast movement with some resistance, you could um, strain one of the muscles and have a theoretical like muscle tear of it, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, am I missing any? Hmm. It's, a, no, it's a strong I, list. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's really thorough and awesome. Uh, you also have like, uh, it, it falls in under the spondylosis category, but uh, you have dege uh, de degenerative disc oh, disease, which is... Right, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, it's basically like uh, sometimes, again, called arthritis, uh, different versions of it. Super mm -hmm. scary when you get an image that says it, but it basically happens to everyone uh, as you just right. get older. Yeah, right. that's when, when people say, my doctor said that my back looks like that of an 80-year-old. Yes. Yeah. It's a scary-sounding name, degenerate, like yeah. degeneration of your, um, yeah. Th yeah. That's why I fear, like, giving a lot of the descriptions because, right. you know, like, uh, I mentioned, like, spondylolisthesis. It's yeah. around, like, 50% of the cases of them um, they, they find are, like, extremely related to early childhood. So if you go and scan... Right. Uh, two-year-olds, there's a study that where they went and did MRIs on two-year-olds back and 3% um, of them, something around there, had a spondylolisthesis. And uh, it's just How like- How many percent? So, what? Three? It's around like three, 3%. Three wow. And then in adults, like uh, the incidence of spondylolisthesis is like 5%. So that's where 50% of them, right. a little bit more, actually likely is associated with having occurred before you mm. even had any idea that it was there. 
And right. um, that's where it's like tricky because people will get an MRI x-ray mm-hmm. something be told that they have this and it's like well you could have had that for 40 years yes. and had no idea 100 percent. and is it also the case with many of these other like i guess quote pathologies which i guess we're not really necessarily using that term but isn't it the case that many people do like on a structural um case actually have many of the or you know some of these examples that you mentioned yet they're asymptomatic they're pain-free they might they wouldn't even know it was there unless they got an mri Exactly. Or some yeah. sort of scam. And, and same with like the, they, they may have had it um, before the MRI. Um, like I think a disc herniation is probably the most common one where mm-hmm. uh, it's something like around 20% of 20 year olds will have it. 30% of 30 year olds will have it. And then it actually right. starts to increase even higher to where if you go into 80, 80 year olds, over 90% of them will have one. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's like, when you consider that though, like you have so many um vertebral levels that you could have so many discrimination's occur and uh, that's just a great a, point yeah they're just a asymptomatic thing that can generally occur like they might be related to symptoms at times mm-hmm. well one more that i probably should mention because we just got, uh, got into older population is um a vertebral fracture um usually like a compression fracture so mm-hmm. super um low incidence in younger populations, but I assume you guys probably reach older populations too. So if you're, um, yeah. you know, 45 plus, then they start to present, uh, especially if you're postmenopausal, then there's a mm-hmm. way higher incidence of them. And that would be like a fracture of the vertebral bone itself. Yeah. So like there's fracture. the, yeah, when you're looking at the vertebrae, um, like the vertebral body, then yeah. it basically is like a fracture in the center and it kind of squishes. That's why it's called like a compression fracture. And uh, it's it's really tricky because if you, again, if you go scan a whole bunch of people in their older age, they pop up a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's really common. Like I used to work at a facility where, you know, um, older individuals lived. And if they were to fall, they would instantly get an x-ray. And they almost always found right. a compression fracture. And that was the cause of their pain. And it was really hard to negotiate that because you know, often people would find improvement, but if you go and check the x-ray, it would still be there. Right. And when you said that, there's also the opposite situation where um, people can have a anatomical change occur through surgery and then their symptoms don't change. Right. So like what we feel in our body um, pain wise, isn't necessarily always connected to like the actual structure um, or the, the tissues and what's going on there. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's um, a really hard one to navigate because we have this perception that, you know, if I have a change from what is called normal, that's the cause of my pain. However, we probably need to update what our definition of normal is. Um, Also understand that changes are really common. Um, They do have a place where sometimes the occurrence of them might be related, but in the vast majority of cases, I think the latest Lancet paper said only 2% of uh, anatomical changes on imaging are actually distinctly related to symptoms. 2%? Yeah, it's a pretty small amount. Yeah. So it just seems um, like it could just be so likely for someone to have some pain in their body go to the doctor, get imaging, and then the scan shows, you know, this, a herniated disc or a something. 
And then that just gets, like you said, blamed for the pain. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases it could be connected, but in many cases it could have been there well before they ever even had the pain, but then they get this idea that that's the reason. Yeah, because even in the case of like asymptomatic people, there's one study that looked at um, imaging their lower backs then doing a follow-up, uh, I think they did two and then five years later and seeing how they changed. And some people had a disc herniation in the first image and then didn't have it in the later one. And they were asymptomatic through the whole time. So they had a disc herniation present, right. it reabsorbed. And there was no back back pain incidents during. That's another interesting fact that I'm not sure uh, everyone knows about, but that disc herniations can reabsorb. They can, they can heal. Like they're not necessarily permanent. Yeah. Like a lot of these things, you know, some don't change like, um, you know, hopefully the, the term disc degeneration doesn't sound as scary now, but like it doesn't quote unquote improve uh, or reduce. But on the flip side, like disc herniations reabsorb, um, end plate fractures can heal just like other fractures can. Um, yeah, a lot of these things can uh, uh, improve if we're going to call them bad. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, out of that list of things that at least just on like a structural basis, um, you might label as like a change or some people might call it pathology or something that can happen in this region. I don't know about you, Travis, but I feel like in the yoga world, um, a herniated disc seems to be the one that's like gets a lot of the attention um, is maybe the one that's like held up the most is like a thing we need to worry about and protect against. Um, And I'm wondering, my impression is that perhaps some of some of the attention placed on disc herniations um, and their connection to like lumbar flexion maybe are connected to some work that I'm wondering if you could maybe lay the backstory uh, for us a little bit, Sam, uh, work done by a very well-known biomechanist named Stuart McGill, who um, I find in the yoga world that many people uh, who know of him uh, think that they, they, um, they take the, you know, they believe that the work that, that was done by him years ago is still uh, the working model today. And I think um, they just like really, they see him as an authority, him and his work as an authority and what he says about the spine and what is what he says his research suggests. So could you maybe offer a little backstory about um, what his, what he did, what his research showed and how it influenced what people think? I think that's not exclusive to the yoga world. It just so happens that yes. people in the yoga world know about Dr. McGill because he's done some work in collaboration with other yogis, right? He's he's done, yeah. I know he's done work specifically with Bernie Clark, who's a yoga a yin yoga teacher. I know the two of them have done like a, a online course together. That's I think oh. called I think it's called Your Spine Your Yoga. Although I could be I didn't I didn't Sounds think I was going to talk about this today. That could be just <laughs> Bernie Clark's book's name, but I think that's the name of their course anyway. Yeah, so he has a presence in the yoga world. But you're right, Travis. For sure, Stuart McGill is like much bigger. You know, tons of people know of his work beyond. And his mustache. <laughs> yeah, he's Canadian, kind of famous. So. Oh, there you go. Right. <laughs> so you're everybody in Canada knows each other, right? So you, exactly. You're, you're you have only best friends one. with him. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I do usually give a preface like uh, I can come off as uh, having a distaste for him, but. I have mm-hmm. a lot of respect for the work he's done. I just think mm-hmm. that the inferences of his work have been misguided, particularly in more recent times where we've had a lot more research 
-hmm. you know, the research he did early on, um, his lab did a lot of studies that, you know, helped to increase our understanding of a lot of this tissue challenges, the loading that they can take when their structures are challenged versus not challenged when they begin to fail, which is really helpful. However, there's a lot of limitations with the research and understanding um, it, particularly in the context of exercise and what we do should mm -hmm. be uh, factored in because, you know, like one of his most notable studies, which I'll explain a lot more on, for instance, is where they had individuals do lumbar, or they had a spine do lumbar flexion repetitively. And eventually there was failure in a lot of the tissues. However, something that's not considered is like they used porcine models. So their pig, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but they're dead pigs. So they don't have the ability right. to heal. So first yeah. off, I assume all of our listeners have that ability. And then <laughs> the next aspect to it is that there was, and this most famous one, there was 86,400 continuous cycles, which I've never done, and I assume most people have never done. I and think you're that not the, an exerciser. I am. I think that the, like I looked it up one time. The crunch world record is less than that. So even in the guy that did like the most crunches in the uh, in a row didn't reach that number. So I love that you looked that up. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and so when you start to layer on some of these things, there's just a yeah. lot of limitations to it. But yeah, when we start to go back, uh, Stuart McGill started to do a lot of his early research and. I'm not too sure if he started in the 70s, but for sure in the 80s and then mm -hmm. into the 90s. And he started to put out a lot of publications. He started to write books on the topic and started to look at how the spine functions, when it gets loaded, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in um, cadaver models, doing things where they would basically bend and extend it, or they would do compression studies where they would squeeze end segments together. Um, they right. would do different styles of them, such as repetitive uh, flexion and extension unloaded. They would do repetitive flexion and extension with progressively more load. Um, they would do uh, instantaneous pressure versus gradual pressure. So a, a mm. lot of different types of studies on this, which helped to gain uh, a bit a better understanding of, you know, when will we see a disc herniation versus when will we see an end plate fracture versus mm -hmm. uh, a spondylolisthesis. Any of these types of things occur. And then also doing EMG studies. Um, I actually just uh, quoted him the other day, which you did. Uh, the, 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 the video is not out yet, but it's uh, discussing uh, quadratus lumborum function because mm -hmm. that's a low back. He's actually, muscle. yeah, it's a low back muscle on each side. And he's one of very few people that have actually looked at it. So <laughs> um, he did a indwelling catheter study on it, which was, uh, oh. uh, yeah, he did it in like the mid nineties and which I, man, the old research that people used to do really cool. Right. I don't, I don't know if you could get a lot of people now to let you like stick a needle in really far and then do a bunch of exercises. Like he had wow. people do heavy deadlifts with a indwelling catheter into their QL. Oh my gosh. That sounds Crazy. so uncomfortable. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> IRBs weren't the same <laughs> institutional review boards that you know, allow you to do research on human subjects. Right. Yeah. That approve that decide whether it's ethical or not. Yeah. I remember I took a, uh, cardiorespiratory physiology class in, uh, my, uh, last year of undergrad and we were looking at some old Swedish research and they were able to convince people to do like a VO2 max, uh, test with a, um, uh, thermometer up their, 
uh, backside in it and yeah <laughs> to be able to get like a core temperature change Whoa! and then the, at the same time they also had a probe coming in uh to their stomach so that they could have another temperature and they wanted to compare the differences and do a oh vo2 max gosh. test and these were people i remember they were getting like in the 60s to 70s for their vo2 which is like a solid score so these are not but you're convincing high level athletes to do this which is pretty crazy VO2 wow, max test is hard enough by itself without getting stuck from both sides. Totally. <laughs> but Sam, I really appreciate how you would mention that like you would um you would even you would cite research from Stuart McGill today that is, you know, that's like relevant to what you're wanting to talk about and just I guess maybe to make that point that like the biomechanics research he does is is valuable or that he did has done is valuable for our understanding of like maybe tissue mechanics. It's not to like brush want to brush all of it aside. Maybe it's more like the extrapolations that have been made or that he made based on the research and that maybe are still kicking around today that aren't I've, necessarily as supported. I've wondered for a long time like whether it was his interpretation and over interpretation or other people's mm -hmm. interpretation and over interpretation. And I, I I long wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I, I think some of it like he's he's to blame. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement, which means incorporating insights from scientific research into our practice and teachings. We channel our understanding of movement science into our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com slash newsletter and that link is in the show notes and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode. And I, I, I long wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I, I think some of it, like he's, he's to blame a bit. <laughs> Travis. Yeah. You know, I kind of found the same camp as you, Travis. And then I started to get pushed, uh, more, not to make this into like a, uh, an angry rant or anything, but, <laughs> right. uh, no, there's a, here. there's a paper that he did on, uh, I think it's called something or another examination of hip arthrogenic inhibition and it's like a paper that's commonly used to say that the the glutes don't turn oh, on oh the, the sleepy glutes yeah it's like the main paper that's used and like studies cited all the time saying that oh this is proof that your glutes don't turn on blah 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 and it's an incredibly impractical study because they actually like went into people and then injected them with like uh i might not have the number perfect but i want to say like five cc's of fluid directly into their hip joint. And then they right. uh, assessed like if it could function still the same. And 
obviously it didn't like we know this from like pretty much every joint that if you just inject it with a ton of fluid it stops functioning and right. um, they saw the same thing with the hip which like uh, when you look up how much someone for instance that ha experiences fai um uh very bad quote unquote bad um osteoarthritis in that region mm -hmm. like the amount of swelling that they induced was 20 times what the average what? Uh, case of that will be and so, the, so like, yes realistic. they shut down the glutes but it's extremely unrealistic where you will never see that occur um, yeah. and in the discussion they directly say this is proof that this happens and so then everyone quotes <sighs> that little section in there in their yes. studies yeah so the yeah. research design makes sense because you want to take it to an extreme to see if you can create the effect, but then when you over interpret right. the conclusions and then you're the foremost spine biomechanics researcher, makes it easy for other people to just take your conclusion and run with it. Yeah. And that's where like, again, you know, we have a lot of very good research from him, but then it has to be put into context. And yeah. that's the part that I think has either been on his part or other people's part missed. Because mm -hmm. for instance, like if we do say, okay, well, if we start to have repetitive lumbar flexion extension, where it's taken to 300% uh, of normal range, which is the uh, standard study utilized. And you look at like, at what stage did disc herniations occur? It's in the like 60 plus thousand cycles. And so you're probably not seeing <laughs> that. so many occur. times, right? Yeah. And, and, and they had actually some specimen that didn't end up fracturing or, or uh, mm. having a disc herniation occur. And whereas like they saw other injuries occur, for instance, like for some reason, this doesn't get us, uh, discussed as much. Like they saw spondylolisthesis occur. So like um, fractures on the opposite side. And it's likely just because they were um, having the bones approximate repetitively over oh, and over again. Yeah. And um, yeah, so there's a lot yeah. of valuable information. You look at it and say, okay, well, if I have someone repetitively go into these different positions mm -hmm. there will be a, a stress that undergoes that will challenge the bones the ligaments the discs all these structures however the part that's missing is like what happens in a human mm -hmm. if i give them time between bouts of this and as we've now gained more research examining this we see that adaptations to these different structures can occur we can have yeah. increased bone density at end plate fracture sites which is um, something that would normally fail in repetitive loading. We right. see that the disc can thicken. We see that the disc can have increased um, uh, fluid levels. We see that the bones on the backside can have increased bone density as well. So a lot of these things can have very positive adaptations if they are stressed and then given time to adapt. Because absolutely, yeah, like you know, the the majority of the early research was on cadavers, which as Travis mentioned, you know, like you want to take these things to the extreme because they give you a starting fundamental concept. Yeah. But then you look at, okay, well, now if I start to take the same model, I look at it in living subjects, do I see <laughs> the same line occur? Or is there some sort of separation in the findings? And there is a separation in the findings, at least in a lot of this. So um, yeah, when people... Sorry, well, and people use that research and say, oh, well, we have a limited number of flexion extension cycles. They say so we, that, yeah. We need to um, avoid uh, mm -hmm. or or be my, like cautious of using our finite number of cycles. Therefore, I need to not put my socks on 
I need to like <laughs> not bend over to put not my, socks, put my on socks, or, socks on or not. That's yeah. real. It's a, th- it's a real yeah. thing I've heard and, or not bend over in a yoga class. And it's like, hold yes. on. Yes. Like maybe that's, maybe that's an over extrapolation. Yeah. Especially because, you know, if you start to look at the research, examining the positives of these things, mm-hmm. for instance, when you look at um, disc hydration, so your disc uh, doesn't have great blood supply to it. And so then mm-hmm. the um, way that it stays, uh, we'll, we'll say healthy, is through osmosis mm-hmm. and then the fluctuation of um, the um, fluids inside of the disc. And when you look at something, for instance, like a forward bend, it helps to push that fluid backwards towards the backside of the spine, which in most normal standing, it actually doesn't get. Um, and so having the fluid shift backwards is associated with improvements in the health of it. That's amazing that you point that out. So it sounds to me, um, Sam, is what you're saying that when you say forward bend, you mean spinal flexion, like that um, mm-hmm. that movement that we tend to hear a lot of cautioning around um, in the yoga world, the movement world in general, as though, like Travis said, we have a limited number of those and we're gonna herniate a disc if we do too many, but it seems like you're implying Maybe like holding ourselves back from spinal flexion may, um, may 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 hold us back from potentially like nourishing the discs, at least in the sense that moving in certain directions can help distribute um, nourishment and keep them healthy. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you start to look at the research on pretty much any tissue, that mm-hmm. if you take away loading to it, so you uh, avoid a range of motion, you avoid a certain line of stress, whatever it may be it will likely have negative adaptations where it decreases the ability to take load, decreases the ability to tolerate strain, whatever it may be. I think the uh, tendon research that we have is a great example of this where uh, there's basically like a U curve of where if you underload it or overload it, you see basically the same response in the tendon, whereas there's this big range of middle zone where if you give it some degree of loading, it has a positive response. And Mm -hmm. while we don't have the same research done on all other tissues, there's probably a similar concept to them. It's just like what that amount is. That makes so much sense. That's that's not even to mention all the other benefits, like the non-physiological benefits. You mean that like come from movement, Travis? Or, yeah, so. or re- avoiding and restricting movement. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, it sounds to me like you're suggesting that like avoiding a range of motion, like going out of our way not to move in a certain way could maybe ironically increase risk of injury. Um, yeah, definitely. Like kind of work like in the, the opposite end, direction of what we think. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. like if you consider, okay, well, if I avoid a range of motion, uh, as much as possible, should I ever have to go into that range of motion? I either a might lose the ability to go into it. I might lose strength, durability, certain tissue capacity for it, whatever it may be. But then also as Travis mentioned, you know, like, especially lumbar flexion, we've had a lot more growing research to show that people in back pain tend to lose lumbar flexion, lose range of motion, lose velocity into it, all these characteristics, which Mm -hmm. is interestingly the opposite of what is commonly said. 
Absolutely. And um, I wanted to tell you, Sam, that leading up to this conversation, I put out on social media a couple of polls just to my audience to see like, um, you know, what like the yoga audience who tunes into my stuff, what they've heard around ideas around the spine, um, you know, and, and spinal position. So I asked two questions. I asked, uh, have you been taught that when you forward fold in yoga so in yoga we're talking like body weight forward folds this is not like weightlifting. we don't have like weight on our back but picture like a seated forward fold in the yoga world we call that paschimottanasana i asked have you been taught that we should always keep a neutral spine in a seated forward fold versus a rounded spine like that the neutral spine is better and 89% of respondents said yes, they had been taught that when they forward fold in yoga, they should preserve a neutral spine like that's preferred. So that was one. I thought that was that was actually a lot higher than I thought that people would say 89%. And then the second question was, and this is more a daily life question, not a yoga question, but it was just, have you been given the advice or have you heard that when you pick something up off the floor, um, that you should lift lift it with your legs and not with your back? And 98% of people said yes they've been they've been taught that so i feel like that i know that's just my audience and you know it's not like a super random sample or anything but i think that's a pretty interesting um you know look into how prevalent these beliefs are about the spine and the funny thing too about the forward fold with the neutral spine is that that's like the initiation of the movement and then you're allowed to round at the end exactly in order Travis. to get it at the end so it's like okay it sure it matters how you got there uh but you're still ultimately rounding yeah, I mean, in a yoga forward fold, I I think if you if you don't allow some spinal flexion, you're not you're not really going to get into the shape. You know, you get into maybe like a a hip hinge or something like a halfway lift. Now now I'm thinking of a standing forward fold or something. You know, you could maybe go approximately halfway down, keeping that neutral spine. But in order to fold all the way down, we um we need to have some spinal flexion in there. Definitely, yeah. Uh, like when we start to look at, so you mentioned hinge. Um, yes. I think the closest thing that we can look at to that is something like a good morning, which for the mm -hmm. listeners that don't know, you're yeah. standing upright, you have a small bend in your knees, and then the goal is to push your hips back, keep your back as extended as possible as you bend forward. Um, so basically trying to not round your lower back as much as possible. And when right. they look at how much lumbar flexion actually occurs during that movement, um, I believe it's 26 degrees of lumbar flexion. So when you factor that out, it, yeah, yeah, it's uh, essentially unavoidable. And when you take that out to other movements, you know, like we have one like the kettlebell swing, the squat, mm -hmm. we have a lot of lumbar flexion that occurs when people are trying and coached by high level people to not round their back. Still, while it might not look like rounding, it's occurring. And that's the crazy thing. Yeah. It looks to, to the, uh, expert coaches eye that they've maintained that flat position that we want and talk about. And then when you actually have them hooked up to sensors, it turns out that they're rounding or that there's that's, lumbar flexion occurring. Yeah, exactly. I think that's part of the, like why I mentioned early on is like some of the motion that we perceive as a flat back mm -hmm. is probably actually the motion that's coming at the uh, thoracic region or the pelvis uh, itself because yeah. you're going to have this unavoidable amount of isolated lumbar flexion motion. But then at the um, thoracic region, especially the lower thoracic, there's a lot of a lot of flexion extension that can occur there. And, yeah. uh, you know, like in a forward bend, you uh, probably will have that 
normal amount of lumbar motion occurs when you try not to move forward or try not to round your back. And then when you let it happen, it's then going to come at that lower thoracic region. Oh, because are you suggesting that when we, tr when we're trying to hold a neutral spine, but we fold forward, um, we are indeed flexing, even though we might not realize it, but it sounds like you're suggesting that the flexion happens more in the lower lumbar region, like the lower ver vertebral segments. Yeah. And yeah, then if a... you allow, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a study that looked at it and it was like, uh, comparing, trying to change the amount of lumbar flexion that occurred and around 10% was changeable. So if you tried to keep a flat back versus letting it change, you could only, um, and this is again, at the isolated lumbar region, not including the other segments that are uh, above and below, you could only change it by about 10%. So it's wow. again, a lot less motion than people think. I think that could be really eye-opening to a lot of people because we do kind of just have this like I feel like at least in the yoga world, but I know beyond just this kind of gospel of neutral, you know, like neutral spine is super important. We all need to understand how to embody neutral in our spine. And then we need to understand how to keep neutral as we go through all these movements, be it yoga or at the gym or whatever. But I think it can be really eye opening for many people to realize that we can't, we can't actually, like, even if we want to, we cannot really embody neutral as we move. It's just the natural way that our spine moves. Yeah, um, like we do have the ability to modify it slightly, but mm -hmm. you know, if your if your goal is to um, have that neutral position at the lumbar spine, yeah, like you said, it's just gonna naturally happen. Whereas you're likely just moving other parts and thinking it's that. That makes so much sense. I have a quick question for you, Sam, and I think some of our listeners can relate to this, but. Uh, in addition to just the warnings we tend to hear about uh, lumbar flexion, there also tends to be, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but this uh, additional caution that like what's, what's even worse than lumbar flexion is lumbar flexion combined with rotation. Have you guys heard no. that warning before too? Lo in a loaded context, especially, but even unloaded too, I think. Yeah. yeah. I tried to find the research for that a while ago, because I think it comes from one study. Do you know mm -hmm. the one I'm talking about, Travis? No, I've, I've never discovered the origin of this claim. Yeah, I, I, I looked really hard and I couldn't find it. Someone told me that there's a, uh, like a person that does read research. They said that there's one study, but I couldn't ever find it. So I don't, I don't know yeah. where this comes from. Maybe it's just a rumor or something like, like just repeated, <laughs> like oral tradition or something. Um, Travis, can I actually ask you a random question or not? It's not a random question, but it was, um, something that you've talked with me before about that. I actually thought our listeners of this episode might appreciate hearing about is, um, could you define for us what loaded lumbar flexion is? Because I think sometimes like, oh, I know sure. I've, I've casually, um, talked about like core work, like crunches and ca called that loaded lumbar flexion, but you told me that's actually not loaded lumbar, like loaded. Lumbar oh flexion. yeah. Well, can so the way. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the way that I, and maybe this is just me, but to me, the loaded lumbar flexion is that you're the muscles on the posterior side of the trunk. So spinal erectors and everything else that's going to extend the spine would be working to counteract an external force that's pulling you into flexion. So the example mm -hmm. that Sam gave the oh, good morning weight is on your back, right. you're you're working concentrically, eccentrically, your lumbar extensors are working concentrically and eccentrically to fight flexion. And it's like we talked about, it's still occurring to an extent, um, but you, you maybe don't want to just like totally 
fold forward, or maybe you do. Um, but <laughs> converse, conversation for maybe upcoming. But anyway, that would be that would be the same in a standing forward fold or a seated forward fold. But you don't have weight on your back or in your hands. You're just under the load of gravity. But where that wouldn't be the case is if you're on your back and you're doing crunches because now you're doing spinal resisted spinal flexion against gravity. Mm -hmm. So the, the load is the opposite. So gravity is trying to pull you into extension. The flexors, uh, anterior core rectus abdominis muscles are going into flexion. So they're, they're opposite things. And, and so there's, there's load and there's always mm -hmm. load unless mm -hmm. you're in outer space, whether it's due to gravity or due to a weight that you're holding on your back and your hands, but which, where, where the direction of the load, is it pulling you into flexion or is it pulling you into extension? And then by virtue of that, are you resisting extension or flexion? So to me, I would, I only think of, um, loaded lumbar flexion under the context of you're trying to resist flexion by extending. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, the crunch or the sit up, I don't think of as loaded lumbar flexion. But, and maybe I just made that rule. Maybe I made that <laughs> distinction up because it doesn't sound like that, you know, in your mind, that was a differentiating factor. I don't know. And, you know, maybe Sam, you think the same way I do, but we have perhaps a similar lens that we're looking at it from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, a really tricky one because like if I said, okay, Travis, I want you to do uh, resisted lumbar flexion, you're going to say, okay, well, I'll do like a sit up or crunch but then that does have load on it, especially if you add a dumbbell or whatever. So then I can understand how it's confusing, but normally, yeah, like when you're saying, oh, well, you don't want to do like uh, lumbar flexion under load is bad. Right. Normally right, yeah. people are talking about that as like um, what Travis mentioned as, you know, I'm lifting something or I'm uh, standing and bending forward and yes. I'm resisting gravity or external load. I think that's usually the context of it. I guess the, the other tricky thing is when anytime this is occurring, there's co-contraction, whether, whether you're doing flexion or extension, there's co-contraction on the opposite side of the joint. So there is some, some whatever mm. force on the spine coming from all directions, no matter where the external load and then the corresponding internal load, even if you're creating extension, you, your, your anterior core is still contracting and then there's load on the spine. It makes sense. Like 360 degrees or whatever, but that's just, I find it helpful to get a little clearer on that term. Cause I, um, I think yeah, I could see how it, I just think it's a little confusing and we, yet we still have the fear mongering around things like crunches, uh, you know, like there's still this belief that that's a lot of flexion and it's bad. And I think, I think it just gets confused and thrown in there with like, that's loaded lumbar flexion. But maybe it's like distinct, but the more the issue is just it's the repeated cycles of flexion or something. That well, that's where you usually hear the the McGill research extrapolated to to say that you shouldn't be doing uh, like tons of high volume crunches because mm -hmm. you're going into flexion. But mm -hmm. may, maybe that's only because people tend not to do hundreds of good mornings. It, like it's mm. maybe that if maybe if somebody were doing that then they would fear monger about that too. I don't know. But also that's, that's more of a, a, a neutral quote unquote. You're not going into as much flexion. That's so true. In the 
any of those axially loaded extension exercises as you are in a crunch. So maybe it, maybe mm -hmm. it's more about the, maybe it's about the volume, but also about the range of motion. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And like, speaking of, you know, um, actual like loaded lumbar flexion, maybe having like a weight on your back, uh, in a squat in the gym or something, or, um, or a good morning is another example, or what is it a deadlift would also be loaded lumbar flexion. So like kind mm -hmm. of all three of those classic weightlifting moves are all movements where if we're talking in the gym, now we're talking about adding weight and adding more load where you might think that's going to make, um, these movements potentially more risky and potentially, you know, um, places where people could injure their discs or cause a disc herniation if they're not like utilizing quote proper alignment. Uh, and I know um, that there, yeah, there's been a lot of research that's looked at, let's say, I guess, uh, li deadlifting technique or, or just lifting something up off the floor. So maybe you're not even in the gym, but you're just, you're just at home and you're picking up a box off the floor. Um, as far as um, lifting technique up off the floor, aren't there some just kind of established, like there are these different techniques and historically we've been taught, like we should lift with the legs and not with the back, but perhaps like current research isn't really supporting those, those kind of older cautions anymore. Like what are the different ways you can pick something up uh, and how is the spine affected? Yeah, I think as your poll showed, people are still under the impression that that's like the way to do things. 90%. And yeah, like I don't think it's inherently bad to try to lift things using your legs, but mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. having the belief that that's the way to do it, I think that's the actually more concerning thing because we do know that when individuals have a greater fragility belief around their back, they're more vulnerable yes. to injury. And so then that's if the assumption point. is that my back cannot tolerate me to bend forward and pick up a piece of paper. Well, that's pretty concerning because then you view your back as being extremely fragile. And now yes. that might be an extreme, like maybe people don't think that, but if it's five pounds, 20 pounds, 50 pounds, if we start to increase it, then they probably have more and more of a belief around that. Yeah. And yeah, like it's just, um, not what research has found because there's a range of studies that have looked at different styles of lifting. So, um, you know, you have the squat style where you bend down, have your hips really low, uh, trying, trying to have a more upright torso, um, either having your feet flat on the ground or possibly letting your heels lift versus, um, the most common other comparison is called a stoop style, which is basically forward bending and then picking something up. So the, the squat is the one that people are usually thinking of when they say lift with your legs. And stoop exactly. is like, is like lifting with the back. The extreme back. bad. Don't do that. Yeah. Right. Stoop the over. one you're not supposed to do. Yeah. And then there's a whole range of ones that fit in between. Like there's a stride stance where you're like in a pseudo lunge position and then bending mm -hmm. uh, and picking something up. Then you have a, uh, they call it a weightlifter style, which is like in between a stoop and a squat where you are, um, you're not as low with your hips as you would be with the squat. Normally your hips are above your knee height, um, but you're not letting your back flex as much. And so mm -hmm. it's sort of like this in between, sort of like a deadlift. Mm -hmm. um, and then they've just looked at the amount of back loading in various different ways, the amount of compression, amount of shear, um, and then looked at how those compare with one another. And honestly, like there is differences, but when you compare the amount, it's not that drastic. Like there's right. pretty minimal differences, particularly with lower loads. 
like if you're picking up something really light, um, virtually no difference. And then when you go into higher uh, degrees of lifting, there is, uh, however, like there's there's pluses and minuses if we consider stress as being good or bad. You know, right, like, right. I, I think stress uh, is contextual. Like if you can, if you have a bandwidth to tolerate stress, it's good. And if it's beyond your tolerance, then it's just not appropriate for you at the, at the current time. Mm-hmm. And when we start to look at, you know, stoop versus um, the squat style, you know, one has more compression, one has more shear, um, then they're vice versa. And so like, which one is more tolerable for you at the current time as you increase the relative demand? And so, you know, someone might be more tolerable of compression. So then the one style might be way better for them uh, to lift that certain weight. Whereas for another person, it might be the opposite. And whereas, on, uh, you know, if you wanted to increase your tolerance of one of those stressors, you would only do so by lifting with that other style where it challenges you to do so. Right. And so in a way, lifting with a style that you might perceive as bad could actually be to your advantage to allow you to increase the um, tolerance, the robustness, the resilience of your back. Absolutely. That makes me think of uh, an exercise that we haven't mentioned yet in this conversation, uh, which is called the Jefferson curl. And uh, maybe I'll just, so Jefferson curl is um, in this. So in the yoga world, if we're standing and we fold forward, we're, we're generally cued to hinge at the hips and like try to preserve that neutral spine, I guess, as long as possible till you fold all the way down. But there's another way you can fold forward. We tend not to teach it as much in yoga because it's been fear mongered about as much. I find it's a little more common in like Pilates, but it would be the roll down. Mm. So you start standing and then, you know, chin to chest, and then you just roll down vertebra by vertebra all the way down into a fold. So that would be like a body weight roll down in a yoga context. But there's also an actual strength exercise called the Jefferson curl, where it's basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically a, a roll down and then a roll back up and you're holding in your hands like, wait, you've added load to that movement. So that's a real yeah. thing, right, Sam? And it seems like to people who've, who've been taught that spinal flexion, you know, is, is injurious, that potentially sounds like a really dangerous movement. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't uh, have tons of people do it. And we can discuss right. why in a second. Not that I think yeah. it's bad. I just think that's not necessarily the best uh, uh, intervention unless you want a highly specific type of loading. But mm-hmm. uh, if your goal is to... Uh, get into deep ranges of lumbar flexion and um, uh, challenge that with some external load. It is bang on the best you can get. It is really interesting that you mentioned like in the yoga world, you basically don't ever see that. Whereas like on the flip side, in the gymnastics world, it is one of the most common interventions actually for like um, training the trunk because for them, they do tons of, um, they do tons of like hanging uh, leg raises, whether it's, hang off mm. of a bar against, uh, is it called the Swedish ladder when they're the thing on the wall? Oh, you know what I'm talking that about? ladder uh, on the wall. I know what that's called, yeah. but I forget. I know what it looks like, moment. but I forget what it's called. Come yeah, back. I think yeah. it's called a Swedish ladder. Um, I think you might there's another name for it. Yeah. Oh, stall bars. Stall, stall bars. bars. Yeah. Nailed it. Good yeah. One, <laughs> yeah. So like they'll do lots of um, basically lumbar flexion uh, in that style. Then they do the flip side trying to do Jefferson curls to be able to strengthen their pike position to the uh, highest level that they can. Yeah. And so like in that world, really common, really normal. 
Um, they have no greater incidence of back pain than other populations. So interestingly, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I've shared a few videos on Jefferson curls. We actually have one on the ether rehab channel where I think I, think I watched that Mark, yesterday. It's Mark, yeah, right? good one. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's advantages to it for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, mm -hmm. I think when I have patients who are fearful of lumbar flexion, I have them do it quite regularly just to nice. challenge that fear and also to explore some ranges that they may not have been in for a long time. Mm -hmm. And typically when you do it there, it, it often is loaded, but the amount of load is usually quite low. You don't see people right. usually doing it really heavy. Except uh, for yeah. Olympic weightlifters. Yeah. So like I'm a competitive Olympic weightlifter and I've done it with 150 kilos. So like 330 pounds. That's so much. And, uh, I've, I've done it off a 20 wow. inch box. So oh um, that's only gosh. like uh 60% of your deadlift or less. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah right so right it's, it's relative. Mm -hmm. Right. So in general, it sounds like what you're suggesting is that people, they can't generally Jefferson curl as much weight as they could if they were deadlifting or squatting or something like it's, yeah, I think, you're inherently not as strong in that movement. Yeah, I, I, I would guess, I probably don't see too many people go past even 20%. Yeah. I think normally you see like right. recommendations of like people using like four to eight kilograms in it and maybe getting yeah. up to like 16 kilos. So yeah, we, that's like, we, we, include that in some of our programs and mm -hmm. i think it's really relevant for yogis yeah but like we yeah. flexibility our, spinal mobility we demonstrate it with pretty light weights not right. to say that you can't go heavier but if, if you feel a stretch then that's kind of yeah that's that's our, you know right. that's where we're coming at it from like oh well this is a good way to stretch your hamstrings exactly and, yeah and that low that's... back and all that Totally agree. Like if someone is, uh, if I'm working with someone that needs to be strong in those deep positions specifically, which mm -hmm. would be valuable for yoga, gymnastics, I think that there's tons of utility there and training it regularly is beneficial. I don't prescribe it on a regular basis because I mostly work with mm -hmm. like um, strength sport athletes or team sport athletes who they go into lumbar flexion, but we're talking like, you know, 70% um, of end range versus 100%. That makes, yeah. that makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. So in more like a traditional, like true strength, ex like your classic strength exercises of like a squat and a deadlift, uh, it sounds like people still utilize lumbar flexion, whether they consciously realize it or not, they are still flexing and they're still loading their lumbar spot. It's like loaded lumbar flexion, uh, but versus like the Jefferson Cole is, is full on, like full range spinal flexion. So there's like a little difference there. Yeah. Yeah, like in a standard deadlift, you're probably getting into, again, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80% of your max lumbar flexion, unless you wow. really tried to round it, uh, which I don't think right. too many people do. No, yeah. Uh, like, I, I'm definitely one of those people who ends up rounding a lot more um, for various reasons. And so then I probably get into like that 80% zone, whereas um, other people who look a little bit more flat probably are in that 60% region. Whereas in the Jefferson curl, like your, your goal is to get to, you know, hundred percent. That makes a lot of sense. Can I ask you another question, Sam? Uh, super related, but a little different. I know we've been talking about like, like deadlifting technique or just lifting something up off the floor, but I know there's another conversation around lumbar flexion and potential injury, which is um, something called butt wink. 
I think some of our listeners will be familiar with that. Uh, and you have a great video. I just watched it. <laughs> I watched your video on the E3 Rehab channel. Uh, and my impression, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but butt week is something that's a little more associated with a squat movement pattern or like versus the deadlift, I think, because you're going generally going like deeper and that can tend to cause that to happen. But what is butt wink? Do people caution about it and do they need to? Yeah. Thank you, Jenny, because I was trying to remember what video I discussed that modifiable lumbar flexion in, and that's the video. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, You're well, yeah, I think you do. You suggest like heel lifts or something in there, I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in there, I go through like one of the papers and I, I can like remember it really well because there's like red lines on it showing like the amount of curve that someone has. And then they try oh, to yes. like purposely change it and it's the 10% or whatever. So right, yeah. Right. Um, Bot wink is the, a term that's used predominantly in like the fitness industry. I'm sure it comes up into yoga. Interestingly, it's not, uh, at least previously, it wasn't popular in weightlifting because weightlifters thought butt wink was normal. Um, Interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's essentially that like your goal or the, the perceived goal in a squat is to maintain that flat back position. And then once you get to a certain depth uh, and that ranges for people, you start to see the pelvis tilt posteriorly, the back starts to round and or round more. And that's thought to be like a bad thing. And so mm -hmm. then people call it butt wink, say don't butt wink. You need to, you know, uh, drop the weight to work on your technique and, uh, spend the rest of your life squatting at the empty bar. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's sort of like the concept around it. And it's, um, I think in some ways it has merit, but it's generally like a really limited concept. If you're someone who's coming into squatting, having, um, uh, a reasonably strong amount of leg strength and you haven't loaded your back to a high level, you might be a person who might be susceptible to a bit more injury risk if you were to go and have a bunch of butt wink because you just haven't mm -hmm. gone into those ranges, haven't loaded them before. Maybe you've done predominantly single leg training. You've done lots of stuff at higher um, angles of hip flexion and so then, or uh, lower angles of hip flexion. So like you've built a lot of leg strength, but haven't been in those lumbar ranges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like dropping it like it's hot in the squat and loading it up heavy might not be the best place for you. At first, but that's something that you would right. develop tolerance to over time. Whereas, yeah, if you go over into weightlifting, you will see people butt wink all the time and they think nothing of it. Like um, I train out of weightlifting gyms and these people don't talk about it. They don't think anything of it. It's like totally normal for them. And it's um, just like a lot of things where we know that the amount of lumbar motion is reasonably not going to change whether uh, if you're still going to the same depth like the only way you can for sure modify lumbar flexion in a squat is to just squat um, higher so you don't go as low because as you go into more hip flexion you will have to go into more lumbar flexion so if you mm -hmm, want to avoid mm -hmm. it you have to just squat higher so if we say well you're going to go down to a quote-unquote um, acceptable depth which is usually like parallel ish so if you say that's going to happen either way, well, then you can't really modify the amount of um, lumbar motion that occurs. But what will, what will change is how much pelvis, pelvis motion changes or thoracic motion that changes. And I don't think it's anything, again, that you have to be inherently worried about. If mm -hmm. you're a rational person who approaches exercise in a reasonable format, you will likely consider right. I should start at a level that I can 
handle and then gradually work your way up versus, you know, I'm going to start and just max myself out on a regular basis and push uh, beyond what I can recover. Well, yeah, you're going to be at more risk of injury, but I don't think that's magically um, the bubbling. To... Right, yeah. right, right, right. I mean, yeah, it, so it sounds like you wouldn't suggest that butt wink is this inherent risk, um, risky position. Um, if you just load it intelligently over time. Yeah, people, like... people are like, oh, do you not do you not tell athletes not to butt wink when you uh, coach them? Like, no, I don't. I, I don't care. It's like if you, right. it, it, you you could come into the gym, I have a whole weightlifting club that trains out of here. I have never once told someone not to butt wink. And you're talking about weightlifting. So when you go to start talking about butt wink, in chair pose in yoga, it's like, we're just, this is just our body weight. We don't need to worry about that. Yeah. How familiar you are with, um, in the yoga world, like chair pose or Utkatasana, mm -hmm. which is, which is kind of like the yoga world's like, a it's not the full deep squat. That would be Malasana all the way down, but it's like, you know, halfway down or whatever. There's so much nitpicking and micromanaging that goes on really in so many yoga poses, but especially in chair pose. And a lot of it is about the lumbar spine position and the pelvic position. And Didn't we ask one time, like, are you, do, have you heard that you're supposed to tuck your tail or untuck your tail in chair pose? And we got both answers. And it's yes. like, well, these two things cannot coexist. One is saying to go into anterior tilt. One saying to, that you actually should posterior tilt. So you should tuck the tail. You should butt wink. And you get, I guess, People are right. talking about both extremes. And and as Travis just mentioned, it's the pelvis tilt. That's the biggest thing that ends up changing. Like you're going to have probably a similar degree of lumbar motion, right. but then the pelvis and hip flexion changing. Oh, that's right. You just said that. So yeah, that's so true. So like what we might see with the naked eye from the outside, we might think the spine is changing, but it sounds like you're saying it's actually probably the pelvis or the thoracic region. Yeah, like there will that be some, change. some some change, but it's not going to be, especially, I guess you said chair pose is like a 90 degree knee bend-ish. Um, so yeah, yeah. You'll, Maybe, you'll have more yeah. ability to, to modify the amount of lumbar flexion right. there, but it's still only going to be so much. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when we threw out for questions for this episode, we got a couple questions specifically about that. And we've talked about it before on the podcast, but... Generally, I think Travis and I would suggest like for chair pose, which is this unloaded, you know, yoga pose, it just doesn't really probably matter unless you have like a really specific thing that you're focusing on, you know, for a yeah. specific reason, for a specific individual, maybe that person does want to specifically, you know, untuck or anteriorly tilt the pelvis or post like they might have a specific reason, but just as a general cue, it doesn't seem like it's something that yoga teachers need to be um, yep. controlling in their students. Probably not, um, you know, like it's a higher degree position, but um, something that I actually do, which is the opposite of uh, what's commonly said is uh, I'll have people posterly tilt their pelvis on purpose uh, during squats. If Whoa. someone for instance, has um, symptomatic, like a hip pinch in the bottom of their squat, because oh, when yes. you go into uh, more of a posterior tilt position, you're in less hip flexion. And so then yeah. it gives you essentially more space at the bottom. Um, and a lot of people find it's way more comfortable, uh, again, like it's as long as you raise your way up and build up, um, tolerance and strength there, you're not gonna have any risk. Whereas you're less likely to have like bone approximation in your hip, which a lot of people stop squatting deep because of that reason. So mm -hmm. it's a easy solution there. That's an awesome reason to potentially have someone go out of the way to do that. I love that. 
Um, I had just like a couple other kind of yoga related questions to throw out at you, Sam, if that's if that's okay. Uh, and these were actually questions that people submitted when we threw out to our listeners for questions. So one of them, and I'm not, sh I don't know like how topical this is, but I think I think it's related. Uh, I don't I don't know if you'll be familiar with this caution, but in the yoga world, uh, Travis, maybe you've heard of this before, but there's kind of this like. Uh, this prevailing rule of like sequencing, you know, like uh, the order right. that you teach yoga poses one after the other. There's this sequencing rule that you shouldn't sequence a uh, back bend, you know, you, a back, you, you know, you know, like maybe full wheel or something. You shouldn't mm -hmm. directly after that have someone come into a forward fold. So they shouldn't go from like full spinal extension into spinal flexion, but instead they should, um, between those two poses, they should do something to quote, neutralize the spine. So well, it's an example to... of the neutralizing the. Yeah. A good example of that might be, uh, like a gentle twist or something is often suggested. So it's like, after you do a back bend, you should not go right into a forward bend. Like that's going to be bad or injurious instead do something else. And so like a, a twist is an, or maybe a side bend, but I find a twist to be pretty common and that's supposed to quote neutralize the spine and then it's safe. Then it's okay to forward fold. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? At least in terms of like injury prevention. Um, yeah, I don't think that you're at a high risk of injury. The only thing where I think that they're generally, as soon as you said that, I was going to essentially write it off. However, <laughs> my one, my one, my one thought with it, and like maybe mm -hmm. Travis can touch on this is like, if you have a big creep stretch on the, um, so like a creep stretch is essentially where you have, um, particularly certain tissues like ligaments, uh, where they're held under tension for a long duration will, um, elongate more versus mm -hmm. when they're held to a shorter duration stretch, they're less likely to actually change elongation. And so if you were to go into, uh, the backward bend and hold mm -hmm. it for, I don't know how long you have to do that to have a meaningful creep stretch, but let's say yeah, that's the question. Yeah. Uh, let's say eight minutes. That sounds like a pretty, eight uh, minutes. but that sounds like the so, amount of time you'd probably have to do. So if yoga, you did usually like five breaths or something. <laughs> yeah. In that case, unlikely, but if you did hold for a really long time, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. maybe you would want to be a little bit slower, but I feel like that would just be because you've been in this position for so long that it's kind of uncomfortable to go anywhere else anyways. Um, right. right. Yeah. That, that would be the only time I think that that would be, a factor yeah i wonder so jenny are there any like um passive stretches where you actually and this wouldn't this would be in a particular style of yoga class where you actually might be holding an extended position for five to ten minutes i think that's a good question possibly in like a yin yoga context um fish pose is that what it's called fish pose yes that's like what you're you're lying back and you kind mm. of arch up supported with props that one honestly i don't i don't know yin well enough to know if that's a common yin pose i see it more in restorative and in restorative you don't usually go to end range in your stretches it's usually just like okay. a little bit of stretch yeah so it would be a contri contrived an example contrived example where you you could actually potentially create the scenario where you might not, or where you might want to be mindful of, well, first, but that, so, okay. There could be a crazy situation where you might want, not want to go so quickly into the other mm -hmm. extreme, but the whole neutralizing the spine thing, that doesn't even mean anything. Right. 
<laughs> it'd just be like you'd want to come out of the end range stretch slow and then just gradually go into the other one because you've been in such a big stretch for so long. Right. You yeah. mean in the in that extreme example, like where you've held for so long? Yeah. Yeah. Outside of that, honestly, it might be better to go from uh, flexion to extension uh, right next to each other. Yeah. You just get more motion back and forth in the discs and everything else. So in a way, right. that might be helpful. I love it. I think that's awesome. And I really like how both of you, in response to that question, you both kind of wanted to think of, well, where's an example where this could actually apply, you know, rather than just like, oh, that's, yeah, you because know, it's not never like truly black or white. But the way that that rule is treated in yoga, it's certainly applied just kind of across the board to just, you know, back bend to forward fold, we should never do that. Um, I love how you point out there could actually be some advantages and benefits specifically to going from a back from spinal extension into spinal flexion. That makes so much sense. Um, can I ask you one, I have one more question to ask you, which this one was submitted by a few listeners. And I also hear this. I, I get this question a lot myself. Um, so the question is, and Sam, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the research on this. I just feel like it's related because we're talking about spinal flexion. But this is about uh, people with um, osteoporosis or osteopenia in the spine. There mm -hmm. are cautions, and I think it's even the official recommendation by um, like osteoporosis foundation or society that um, that people with osteoporosis should not uh, do very much spinal flexion and that that could be injurious. And of course that comes up in yoga because we have a lot that we do that involves like rounding the spine. Do you happen to have any thoughts on, on that? Like spinal flexion as a, a risky position for those with osteopenia and osteoporosis? Yeah. So uh, I know a lot about osteopenia and osteoporosis. I'm trying to think if in any of those stretches, would there be a meaningful risk to, because like essentially what you're looking at is in those conditions, we're disregarding, you know, disc injury. We're disregarding a lot of the other types of injuries and focusing extremely on the actual bone. Right. And right. Is the bone at more risk in these positions? I'm not sure that it necessarily is. Um, in an unloaded sense, because theoretically, um, the way that the bone could be at more risk would be a through a compression type injury. So that would be like, you know, you fall on your butt, um, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I assume isn't really happening. We don't do it. And then, yeah. <laughs> then the other kind would be like a uh, end plate fracture, which we talked about a bit earlier. And that's the one that's probably more common in weightlifting because there's this instantaneous high amount of strain where the uh, muscle and disc are strained and they pull against um, that region. And it's just that the end plate is the weak, uh, weak link in the chain. And so then right. it's the part that rips and it's, uh, it's the bone though. And so the bone is actually mm -hmm. not able to tolerate enough. And so that's where if you had osteoporosis, you might be at more risk of that. But I mm -hmm. don't think um, they're a common injury for yoga. So then when you start to narrow out all these different options, it leaves you with, well, like what could happen to the bone? And I don't think that there's much of an actual risk there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because surprisingly, when you start to look at like how the bones positively adapt to being challenged, there's a lot of good research that essentially like you put pretty hard challenges to bones and they get better. Um, like there's been a handful right. of research in the last mm, six, seven years 
from researchers in like Australia and then some in Italy and Europe where they've been doing things like, for instance, the lift more trials where mm -hmm. they take people that are postmenopausal diagnosed with full on osteoporosis and they have them do five by five on back squats. Um, <laughs> they do right. jumping pull ups and bench press and they reverse That's osteoporosis. So true. Um, and then similarly, there's some research where they've been doing uh, this is the stuff I think in Europe where they've been having them do um, boxing and uh, jumping wow. and they do it with um, like minimal covering on their actual hands. So it's not like wearing full on gloves. Like I think they just uh, wrap their hands and then they punch uh, boxing bags or mitts. Yeah. And then instead of like wearing a glove and they actually have improvement wow. in um, their forearms and upper yeah. arms. Oh my and gosh. From all that impact. Yeah. So from impact, and that's why they do the same thing with jumping and they have mm -hmm. uh, beneficial changes in their feet, tibia, femur, and I think pelvis. Um, wow. So essentially like they're loading it in ways that commonly are told not to, and then they have positive adaptations right. to it. I don't think that um, yoga would necessarily challenge the bones in those ways to have like the same kind of mm. uh, like uh, thickening or yeah, increased density. However, I don't see how it would have a negative side. Yeah, it's not nothing, right? Because it's it's uh, you're you're working under you're working against gravity. So if that's a lot for you, <laughs> yeah. uh, because you haven't done anything up to that point, but it doesn't mm -hmm. have the same potential to create adaptation. Yeah, like if you're coming off bed rest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for most people, I think that are just like generally live their day against gravity. They shouldn't. <laughs> be challenging their spine to such a level or their other bones that um, doing a yoga pose would be too hard for their spine. Right. Or any of them. Yeah. Thank you so much for offering your perspective on that. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, I, I have like a personal bias around these kind of things that just in general, I want to make it less about position and more about these larger, wider factors like total load and loading history and just you know, injury being like this much bigger picture. So I, I want to challenge my bias, which is to, you know, maybe suggest like, if, like yoga in general could probably be okay doing spinal flexion for osteoporosis. Like, I feel like I want to say that, but I also yeah. know that that's my bias. And so um, it's really helpful to hear you reflect your feelings on that. Yeah, I think variety is the spice of life and the benefit to your tissues, because like most things, like there's a level of which doing it is going to provide benefit. And then eventually, if you push it far enough, and that's relative to each individual person, things will happen. Yeah. Um, but like for most people, they're going to benefit from going into lumbar flexion during yoga poses. And sure, if you go from zero to... Mm -hmm. 60 minutes of it a few days a week of pushing it yeah that's gonna probably be too much but if you ramp up to it then you're gonna adapt in a beneficial way that will make you um better at yoga but also more durable for life may more yeah. able to tolerate these different positions all great things that that's an interesting point i think too as a very minor caveat of yeah if you go from doing nothing to doing an hour and a half of yoga five days a week, mm -hmm, you, you mm -hmm. might be building up too fast, but it's not, it's not because yoga is bad. It's because you've ramped up too quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like 
Um, last year, I uh, decided that I wanted to improve my swimming abilities. Uh, I'm a pretty atrocious swimmer, and <laughs> I ended up having a foot injury swimming, um, oh. uh, Travis. <laughs> but it was because um, during my kick, um, I had to resist plantar flexion, and I wasn't used to doing that. And I essentially had like a um, irritable uh, attachment at my tendon where it was just basically tugged on every time I was kicking because I don't have that much plantar flexion. And I went from essentially like maybe I would do 10 minutes when I go with my daughter every now and then <laughs> and doing three to four days a week of 60 minutes of swimming. And my yeah. body was just like, whoa. Yeah. Which is funny because you look at swimming and you're like, all right, that should be fine. Like you're, you're super fit right. in many other modalities, but that one thing you're in a lot of plantar flexion. And if you don't have a lot of plantar flexion and you're doing, you know, in 60 minutes, it's a very, it, it actually is a somewhat extreme position, but it's not something that you would expect right off, mm -hmm. you know, off the top of your head. You would be like, Oh, well, you know, shoulders, back, knees, would be totally. the things that would go. You wouldn't think about this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thank you for sharing that story too. And just, yeah, just a good reminder that um, to keep the bigger perspective in mind and that everybody is individual. It's, it's really contextual um, in so many ways with things like injuries and injury prevention in general. Um, who would have thought that would happen? But I think it's very cool that you've decided to, that you decided back then that you wanted to add on swimming. To, to awesome. his credit, you you improved a lot. I mean, you you're no longer atrocious, or at least you weren't when you were doing it often. You yeah, I went from uh, barely being able to do 25 meters. I mean, like literally, like full on thrash mode to get across. To uh, I did uh, 1500 <laughs> so, meters. Wow, yeah. that's so, so impressive. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get back to consistency this winter and hopefully uh, mm. goals to get to 5K. So, wow. I'm very impressed. Uh, well, I certainly feel like Sam has done an excellent job today, kind of addressing all of these questions. He, he lived that, up to the hype. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and more. And he did it in such that, that characteristic, like diplomatic, positive way uh, that I think we really admire about Sam so much. Um, Sam, could you, I know we talked a little earlier about E3 Rehab and stuff, and we will put all the links to all the places people can find you in the show notes, but is there any, like, are there any one or two, uh, places you'd like to tell people right now, like where they could go find you and follow your work? Yeah. The easiest place would be on Instagram. I'm a dr.samspinelli. I share all the E3 Rehab and Citizen Athletics content on there. Alternatively, mm -hmm. you can go and check out um, the Instagram or YouTube for both companies. There's tons of resources. We're trying to, especially the E3 Rehab, push out a lot of educational material on a regular basis and just try to deliver as much free content as possible. Absolutely. And you do such a great job and an impressive job with that. Thank you for you know, that, that offering and contribution to just all the rest of us who, who want to learn about these topics. It's like really helpful and valuable. Yeah, well, it's uh, really great to be on here talking with you guys. You're super knowledgeable and it's good to be able to learn some more about yoga and see the commonalities of the mm -hmm. things that I notice in other areas, like when weightlifting, where uh, misinformation occurs, and then also the ability for improvement in education. I, I, I second that. And that like, that's what the, what makes the collaboration with Jenny so fun is like, I come at it from a fitness and, and somewhat rehab lens 
and then mm-hmm. hearing like all the same things same. you know from a slightly tweaked perspective from yoga like that's why we have the podcast yoga meets movement science so cool right. cool to hear uh you experience like a similar uh clashing of the worlds colliding of the worlds yeah and how they can all complement one another and like help each other and come together yeah so sam thank you so much for being here today i can't wait for people to listen to this i know they're gonna love uh, and learn so much from this conversation and um yeah thank you thanks and that wraps up our look at whether rounding your back is dangerous Remember that you can support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter, and the link is in the show notes. Lastly, remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.